you back this evening and thank you for your being here tonight as we continue on our journey with John. I don't know if you have a child that is very much like you. Uh, If you do, you know what a blessing and a curse that is at the same time. There is a a miniature version of me that's usually around church, and uh, a lot of the things that he does, and many of the things which he says, I attribute to his mother. But uh, it is interesting, as a parent, in the conversations that Tyler and I have, uh, the the more conversations we have and the more I get to know his heart, uh, the more I see it's exactly like mine. Now, maybe not exactly like. He thinks differently. He's, he's thinking as his own person. He is himself. But when he does something, I understand why he did it. When he thinks or says a certain thing, I understand how he got there. As we talk in conversations, I understand more and more uh, exactly. I, I totally identify Tonight what we're going to talk about is as close to a father-son experience that we can have with Christ. We're talking about the vine and the branches. And Jesus talked about this in John chapter 15. Now, he didn't call them children, but, but he alluded to this idea that, that the source is him and that we are uh, an outreach, a branch, a, a a producing fruit that comes from him. We are simply a, an in-between. And that he does that through us. And, and though we're all very different children, we all have very different stories, we all have very different backgrounds, and yet it's the same vine working through all these many branches that works through us. So I look forward to... Uh, Studying this with you tonight, I hope that you'll join along. If you're in your Bibles, you want to turn to John chapter 15 as we look at a pretty famous word picture. John chapter 15, we're going to try to get through verses 1 through 25 tonight. Uh, This word picture, by the way, is a pretty well-known one uh, for religious people. In our modern culture, it's not as relatable, really, to our a less agrarian society. We, we don't do as much of the farming and, and certainly not of the agricultural uh, nature that they would have understood across the landscape of Jerusalem. Uh, then and now, you can see fields of vineyards. That uh, was the most, um, I'm not sure if it's the, the, the most popular crop, but it was certainly a very uh, easy to see Uh, Evident to all and a picture that was not just understood in a metaphorical sense, but they could look and see, oh, yes, this is what he means. So as we think about this picture that Jesus gives us, may we come to it understanding the lessons, seeking to understand the lessons which he was trying to to give us. If you're in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 25, uh, before we jump right into that text... Not only was this a common sight, not only was this a common image to see, the, the, the vineyards and, and the fruit, and the fruit being harvested and used for, 
for the fruit of the vine, for the wine, and for the, for the drink, uh, for the, uh, the harvest of those grapes which are on the vine. But this, the vine was also a very common biblical symbol for the nation of Israel. Uh, as God was in covenant with those people, he used this picture of a vine. And one of those are several places. I'm not going to go through all of them because they're kind of away from the text that we're in tonight. But Isaiah chapter 5, if you, if you want to turn there and just hold your finger in John 15, if you're interested in the background. If you're not interested in the background and you're just ready for just hold on, we'll get there, okay? <clears throat> but in Isaiah chapter 5, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 1 through 7, the prophet there writes, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, but cleared it of its stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as a well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the, uh, is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. Okay, so that is a very descriptive and a really good one in seven verses uh, of the relationship that God had between He and His beloved Israel, and that, what He had done for them, and yet the harvest was continually sour grapes in a lot more ways than one. Uh, the, 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 the result of what God had done was not what you would have intended for someone who takes care of this garden, who, who removes all of the, the bad things, who gives it every reason for these, for these grapes to grow. Uh, the, what was harvested was not what the master intended. And so because of that, he decides to remove this hedge of protection and to allow the vineyard to be overrun. Of course, we understand this would be the... Uh, uh, eventual uh, captivity by uh, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. But it, it was this idea that God had taken special care to prepare this vine and to make it fruitful and productive and to make it grow. And the result was not what God intended. Now, when you read that and you understand the background it brings to life so many of the stories which Jesus told and the metaphors that he used that involved the vines and the branches and the harvest and what we're going to talk about tonight. So understand this is not a new picture. Jesus is trying to help explain it, and he's going to kind of turn a, well, what he's done all throughout the book of John. He's going to take something which is... Not good, and turn it which is into something far better. We're in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 25. Jesus speaking the entire time. I am the true vine, 
and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. All right, this leads us to kind of our first point of talking about this text, and that is that he is the source. He tells us, he gives us the last I am statement that he's made here in John. Remember, we've had seven of these, eight of these if you count uh, his statement where he said before Abraham was I am. But in any case, this is the last one, and uh, I think it's a very, very poignant one. He's saying that I am the true vine. The one that you had before, it, it, it didn't produce what my father intended it to produce. So I'm the true vine. I'm going to produce that which is good. And, uh, well, I won't jump too far ahead here. He says, my father is the gardener. The, some translations say the vine dresser. The, the gardener's, the, the vine dresser's role, his job, his number one desire was to have as much fruit as possible off of that vine. And not just in quantity, but also in quality. His desire was to have, and you know, that made him a success. The more he did of that, in that culture, certainly, the more people paid him for his harvest. And the more people wanted to have him, we might, we might put it in today's terms, he would be a highly paid consultant. Because he would tell other people what he did. To do this, to, to get that very fruitful harvest, he does basically one of two things. First is, he goes down the vine and he removes the dead, unproductive, unfruitful branches. Okay. Now, in, in this picture, if we back up a little bit, <clears throat> we can see one of those directly right here in Judas, who's left the, the, the twelve. He's gone off. He's not here with them now. And, of course, we know he's going to go on to, to betray his master and his teacher. So the first thing he'll do is remove, just outright remove the unproductive, unyielding branches. The second is that he will prune the branches that, are, that remain for the purpose of making them more fruitful. Now, <clears throat> from a vine's perspective, pruning is a pretty difficult process. Uh, if you've done any kind of, of gardening in any, in any way, form, or fashion, you've had to prune. You, you take this uh, bush or this plant, and it's producing, it's producing, but what it's producing is very small and limited. So you prune back so that the flowers or the fruit or the, the vegetable uh, is even, that it does produce is even more fruitful. What does this mean for us? It means that as faithful followers of Christ, there may be times in which God prunes you and he's not even mad at you. He's doing it for your benefit. He's doing it to, to make you more fruitful. In a lot of ways, um, you may have a relationship in your life that you really treasure, but that God says, uh, I need to prune that back. You may have something in your life that's a temptation to you, but you think you can handle it. And God says, no, I need to prune that back. 
You may have a job that's going to put you at odds with doing what's right and doing what God wants you to do. And, and between those, you know, God may say, I want to prune that back. You may have <clears throat> a hindrance or something that, that's keeping you back from being a fruitful, productive disciple, being a fruitful, productive branch on the vine. And God says, I just want to cut that back. And cutting hurts sometimes. Cutting hurts most of the time. And if you've ever been cut and you've had something removed from your life, especially as a follower of Jesus, the natural response and the natural reaction is, woe is me. Why did you do this, God? But if we see it from the gardener's perspective, the vine dresser's perspective, sometimes he cuts us to heal us. Sometimes he cuts us to make us produce more fruit. To, uh, and so as we talked about this morning, we have to trust him. Because he, we believe that he knows what's best and what's in our best interest. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, uh, is I realize not in John, but it applies here. Hebrews 12, 1 says in part, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Uh, so if you've lost something that was important to you, or you've lost a relationship, and again, I'm not applying this equally over every type of loss, but there are situations when when we lose that which is important to us, but it's not important to God. And he has the right and uh, certainly the ability to prune. Pruning is really short-term pain for long-term production. It's in the best interest of the vine so that it can grow and be healthy and live. <clears throat> All right, we continue on in our scripture. <clears throat> Let's look at verse, um, we'll go ahead and start back in verse 4. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, then he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Second lesson is that we stay close. When he says remain in me, the NIV, uh, some translations say abide in me. The Greek word there is mino, which simply means, oh, thank you, thank you, fruitful, watering branch. The Greek word there is to remain, to stay, to endure, to continue, to persevere. It kind of connects with what we talked about this morning. Um, It's this idea that we stay. 
we abide in Christ, we remain with him, we persevere, we don't give up, we don't give in. This is especially pertinent understanding what Judas has just done. One of the commentators by the name of Schofield wrote this. I thought it was good, so I'm just going to steal it and uh, give credit. To abide in Christ is, on the one hand, to have no known sin unjudged and unconfessed, no interest into which he is not brought, no life which he cannot share. On the other hand, the abiding one takes all burdens to him and draws all wisdom, life, and strength from him. Nothing is allowed in the life which separates us from him. Well said. And uh, reiterated by Peter nine chapters earlier, after many people leave, you know, John chapter 6, verse 66, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. At this time, many of the disciples left, turned back, no longer followed him. And Jesus said in verse 68, what about you? You want to leave? And Peter gets it right. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's knowing there. He's remaining. He's abiding. He's not giving up. He's, he's sticking to his Savior. So this is important because we understand that the disciples then have the option to leave, to turn back. And the same is true today. Disciples have the option of leaving. And this is a bit of a contrarian teaching when you come into churches of Christ. Because um, a lot of churches teach the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Once I'm in, I'm in, that's it. You can't take me out. You can't lose. There's no way I can give up my salvation. And if you did, you never were one to, be, to begin with. And that's simply false. There were disciples in Jesus' day that believed in Jesus and turned away and turned back. Uh, we, of course, know that Judas did that. He turned away. There were disciples after the day of Pentecost that were a part of the church and then left. They turned around. They didn't abide. John chapter 15 is the strongest case why this doctrine is false. Okay? And I understand we get this question on Know Your Bible quite a bit about once saved, always saved. It's a very comforting doctrine. But I just can't place that doctrine over Scripture and say, well, I'd like, to, I'd like to believe what comforts me and makes me feel good. Jesus said, remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you turn away from me, if you pull back from me, um, you're detached from the vine. And he says there, when, when the branch detaches from the vine, the branch withers, it dries up. And that branch is good for nothing except to be tossed into the fire. So once saved, always saved is false. We are admonished back then and today by Jesus, by the disciples themselves, to remain in Christ. Now, what we answer on that question is, your salvation can never be taken from you once you're in Christ, but you can choose to give it up. You can choose to turn away, as many have done, uh, sadly. Can they return? I think so. I think anyone can. Uh, but I think the, the, the day of your death or the day of judgment is you know, beyond that point. It doesn't change. So we, we have to abide in Christ through faith, love, and obedience. 
uh, and he abides in us through the Holy Spirit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is an important point. Fruit is only produced by a branch that's connected to the vine. Um, If you take some delicious grapes... And, and they look really good like the ones in the picture. I know our, our projection on our screen isn't great, but imagine some great-looking grapes there, okay? Mouth-watering kinds of grapes. Right? They look fabulous, and they probably taste fabulous for a while. But the moment they were plucked, they were dying. For after a time, those babies will become beautiful, delicious raisins. And after that, they'll become pretty much worthless, although... Depending on who you ask, some would judge a raisin as pretty worthless anyway. But the truth is, once it's separated from the vine, it's dying. It must remain connected to the vine to be alive. Uh, My mother's mom and her husband were uh, owned an orchard. And so my very, very, very first job was only a week long, but it was during spring break. And they, Grandma Moore and Grandpa Moore hired me to work in this orchard. And that's what would happen. They had this, even though it was apples, um, they looked beautiful, but if, if they weren't connected to the vine, they begin to die. <clears throat> and sometimes, <clears throat> if they were on there for too long, excuse me, eventually, if you got enough rot got to them, they'd just fall off themselves. The life was dependent on being connected to the vine. As soon as it was disconnected, that fruit needed to be harvested and used as quickly as possible. This is a really something we, we need to think about in terms of our own lives and our own fruitfulness. You and I can look really good. We can dress up on Sundays. We can talk the talk. We can, from all appearances look real good. But you and I are dead if we are not connected to Christ. And that that is it. It doesn't matter how good you talk, how good you look, how good you look on the externals. If the heart is not connected to the vine, it's dying. It's dead in sin. And it needs Christ to have life. So it reminds us that there's a deep difference between knowing about Jesus And knowing Jesus. Judas knew about Jesus. I question whether he knew Jesus. You can do a lot of good for the sheep without knowing the good shepherd. It's important for us to remember that as good as we look, as good as we sound, as good as the externals might appear, if we're not connected to the vine, there's a problem. We've got to have that relationship with him and be connected to him. All right, let's continue verse 8 and go through verse uh, 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love, I've told you this so that my joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends 
if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. As we understand how important it is to stay close, we understand what it means to seek to be fruitful. Vines have two types of branches. Pretty simple, really. There's those that produce the fruit and those that don't. What I used to do when I read John chapter 15 is get really worried. Because what I read it was produce fruit. Which in my way of thinking was do more, do better, try harder, be better. And while some of you may understand that line of thinking, hopefully you understand that that's the wrong fruit. That's the fruit of Toby. That's Toby doing his stuff to produce his fruit. We, when we're connected to the vine, need to choose the better lasting fruit of the Spirit. The, the, the fruit, step away from the uh, really cool visual up there and stop picturing fruit. And start picturing, using the word fruit as the result, the product of the fruit of your labors. You know, when you, when you go to work tomorrow, wherever you go, and you earn a paycheck, and you bring that paycheck home, and then you are able to make the mortgage payment, you're able to buy clothing, put food on the table, whatever, whatever that's all fruit. That's the result of your efforts. Okay. Two types of fruit in my mind. The fruit that we produce and the fruit that the Spirit produces. And uh, we can dangerously, erroneously get into the idea that if I just, if I just do more myself, then that, that means I'm connected to the vine. That's not what he's saying. We need to yield to the Spirit, and he produces fruit in you. And he gives some examples. Okay? The first is obedience. <clears throat> You're my friends if you do what I command. It's very simple. If Jesus said to do it, then we do it. Trust and obey. Love is more than that warm, fuzzy feeling. Um, Even if I did have one of those warm, fuzzy feelings for my wife all those years ago, the proof of my love for her was shown in my actions, by my willingness to be faithful and to live every day sacrificially for her, and likewise the other way around. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commands. Uh, If you love me, just absolutely show off in worship. That's not what he said. If if you love me, pray 23 hours a day. That's not what he said. If you love me, keep my commands. It's the most sincere, honest way of showing your love for Christ is to do what he said. The problem is... You and I have a nature that tends to want to disobey the commands. I don't know what it is. I don't know. That's not the focus of the lesson. But if I tell you right now to please not look up at the PowerPoint screens, 
there are those of you in here who are violating that very command. You can't help it. It's within our nature. So the Spirit helps us, and if we'll yield to him, he will help us to obey the commands. Now, there's some commands that are easy to obey, right? Usually the ones that aren't tempting for you. But there are other commands that are a lot harder. And you know Jesus said it, and you want to obey it, but there's something within you that keeps disobeying. And you need more help than you. Okay? And he's going to get to that. The second is to, uh, beyond uh, obedience, is to love. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Patiently, sacrificially. When you yield to the Holy Spirit, he helps you obey. When you yield to the Holy Spirit, he helps you love. I know there are people that are easy to love. You're probably sitting by him tonight. And if you're honest, sometimes those people aren't that easy to love either. But there are probably people that you're sitting far away from that you, you just don't get along. Your personalities aren't the same. You don't have similar interests. Just at different points of the spectrum, I guess. And Jesus wants you to love them too. Jesus wants you to love people who really grate on your nerves. How do you do that? The good news is the Spirit, which produces this fruit, helps us to obey, helps us to love one another. Galatians 5.22 and following. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of you. And not talking about any particular kinds of edible fruits. The fruit, the result of the Spirit, of yielding to Him, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Very quickly now, the last seven verses of the chapter. So in verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As the world, it would love you as its own. As, as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of their sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated me both they have hated both me and my father. This is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. 
When the counselor comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will also testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All right, we finish by saying don't be surprised when the world hates you. The world, by the way, the world in that sense included some of the religious people of the day. They were very religious But they were of the world. They were of a system of values that was different than the Father's. The world did not always love Jesus. And there was a myriad of reasons. And the same is true today. One, they loved darkness rather than light. You remember John 3.19? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Sometimes pulpits can get all sorts of worried about what's going on in the culture and how we're supposed to fix that. And there's a simple explanation. Sometimes the way things are in the world have very much to do with this simple fact. Men love darkness rather than light. And so we as a people have to make sure we love the light and love what it produces. Some people see the light and they flee from it. But if men love darkness rather than light, if you're a follower of the light, if his light is shining through you, what reaction will they have toward you? Very simple. Don't take it all personal. Okay, This has been a battle that's been raging on for centuries. The world does not always love Jesus because sometimes they love evil, desire evil, more than good. John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Again here, um, sometimes we get this picture of people in a church building, and and then everybody outside the building is, is the world. Don't misunderstand. Jesus addressed a lot of religious leaders of his day as the people of the world. They belonged to the system of the world. They held on to different values than than Jesus did. That's the world. And we have to be diligent to make sure the world's not in us, regardless of whether we're in a building or not. The church is to be the called out. That's what Jesus says, I chose you. I called you out of that. So may we love good more than evil. And finally, they prefer lies to the truth. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Now, he's speaking here clearly to the Pharisees, to the teachers. This is, not, this is not people of the world in the, the sense that we might think it is. They preferred to love lies rather than the truth. And when Jesus told them the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you mad. That's exactly what it did. As, as followers of Christ, may we not be surprised when the world reacts as it does. May we love the light. May we love what's good. May we love what's true. 
Philippians 4.8. Set your minds on these things. And may we learn to recognize that when the world loves darkness and loves lies and loves evil, may we not be surprised. You're going to turn on the news all this week and you're going to see that. And it shouldn't surprise you. What you should be careful of is making sure that's not in you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 and following, Paul writes, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And this is the final promise, that if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then the world will hate you just as much today as it did back then. And that doesn't mean that God's against you or that he's forgotten you. Quite the contrary. Jesus simply said it was a promise. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Our job, our role, our goal is to not be overcome by that hatred. To not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And maybe it's kind of a measuring stick. If the Apostle Paul says everyone who wants to live a godly life, everyone who's connected to the vine will be persecuted. Maybe if you haven't been persecuted as a Christian, maybe you're not much of one. It's a hard question. It's a hard statement to make. But Jesus was clear. Paul was clear. We follow Christ If we're in him and he's in us, the world will not respond kindly. And sometimes in the the church, the temptation is to make the church appeal and, 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 and bend to the world. And that's just never, ever going to happen. The world will always hate the followers of Christ. And so may you look at your own life and ask, how much does the world love me? How much does the world know I even follow Christ? May we not be surprised and if we examine our lives and realize there's something in our lives where we, we have loved evil, we have desired the darkness, may we repent of that and turn back to the Christ, the vine, the life. He is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from him, no good can happen. Because any good that might happen apart from him would only be from us. And we don't want our fruit. We want his fruit to, to, to pour out in our lives. So tonight, I want to invite you in, on two specific levels. One is, if you don't know Christ and you're ready to trust in him and to confess him as Lord and to be connected to the vine through repentance and, and baptism for the forgiveness of your sins and, by the way, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that produces fruit that's greater than what you could ever hope to produce. If you're ready to do that tonight, I want to invite you. But but maybe you've been connected to the vine, but you haven't been very fruitful. You've been letting some stuff come through your branch that is not of the vine. Before you're cut off, why don't you repent sincerely and ask God to do a work in you And uh, ask for his forgiveness. And we'll pray with you and for you. We're here to help.
And that's what we want to do tonight. If you have a need to come to Christ or to repent and turn back to Christ, whatever your need might be, come as together we stand and sing.